Well, this week we're going to look at Genesis chapter 47. I have no idea if we'll get done early or only get halfway through the lesson. This one's got me a little bit uh, uh, uncertain on the timing, but we will work through this and, and we will learn from it as we go. Last week in chapter 46, we saw Jacob who's called Israel, and I think that has some significance because we are now forming the nation that will be called Israel as they make this move into Egypt. But uh, he started his trip to Egypt the night before in a night vision. Uh, God said, don't worry, it's okay to go, which it, it doesn't say that Jacob was concerned about the promise uh, for the land of Canaan and to be a great nation there. Uh, but if he was concerned, God was certainly going to, through this, night vision let him know it's great to go as a matter of fact i'm going to go with you i'll make you a great nation there and i'm going to bring you the nation up again to canaan the promised land and so it's a promise this i didn't really talk about this very much last time but this promise to bring him up again is fulfilled maybe multiple times but certainly fulfilled two very significant ways the first way, of course, is the obvious. God does bring the people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob up out of Egypt as a nation. Uh, and so the earthly nation of Israel is established in bringing them up again. But also, the hope of the nations and the nation eternal of the kingdom of God is brought up out of Israel when Jesus as a child under the parents of uh, Mary and his earthly father figure uh, Joseph bring them up again and uh, we see that move out of Egypt in the same way Jesus the king of Israel on David's throne eternal as a matter of fact Let's go over to 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17 for a minute. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. This is why I don't know how far I'll get today because I keep running to things I could have said before. And uh, some of those we're going to look at. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. And this, by the way, is Samuel being told by God what to say to David as they're looking forward to uh, David's end of tenure and the rollover into Solomon that will be coming. So uh, somebody read that for 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he comes <coughs> iniquity, I will correct him with the love of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Excuse me. So God gave Nathan a message to David, and we can see as we read through that, some of that's looking near-term and some of that's looking far-term. When he talks about establishing his house and his throne forever, we know, of course, he's looking forward to Jesus, right? And so we see things mixed in together there about the future of Israel. Uh, we know that some of that must be looking far forward because will there be some problems with people? Yes. But the problems with people, with the kingdom being harassed will certainly end when Jesus is fully established on the throne uh, ruling this world. And so um, he had his throne forever, your house and your kingdom. We're talking about Jesus, the incarnate God. And uh, it will include the Gentiles as well as we see them grafted in later. And so moving on with the account of last week they they Jacob and company set out on their journey they were loaded in wagons provided by Pharaoh they took all of the people and all of their belongings including the livestock the first stop was Beersheba which was the final home of Isaac and a place of worship for many of his ancestors and then Moses gives us a fairly detailed listing of the main relatives on the journey, the sons and grandsons and a few daughters and granddaughters, of the key people, uh, we were told there were 66, 70, if you include Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons. And so when they get to Egypt, Jacob sends Judah, not the oldest, but now the one that's leading, to get direction on how to get to Goshen from Joseph. And that's going to be quite a task, settling all these people in Goshen. And so Joseph also goes up. He fixes up his chariot, and he goes up there and meets them in Goshen. There's a very emotional, tear-filled reunion with Jacob. He and Joseph share a long moment. And Jacob said, I'm satisfied. Essentially, I can now die happy, to use our modern way we might have said it. But uh, Jacob said, there's not something left outstanding in my life that would keep me from being satisfied if I were to die now. Joseph takes a little bit of time to coach his brothers and family on how to respond to Pharaoh. And the theme is, we're shepherds like our fathers before us. And he makes it clear this is going to mean that the Egyptians will loathe you because they loathe all shepherds and also it will help us have the chance to live in Goshen because that's shepherding country. So 
it certainly appears that this is a goal of, in Joseph's mind, um, that indeed we will be shepherds and not well thought of in the eyes of the Egyptians. So with that background from last time, let's read, first of all, Genesis chapter 47, 1 through 6. Genesis 47, 1 through 6. Who has that for us? So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. All right. So, Joseph, first of all, goes to Pharaoh and said, My brother, my father and brothers are here. Which, by the way, if we went back a couple of chapters, that's exactly what Pharaoh had commanded him to do, was bring your family down. That was a command from Pharaoh. And so he shouldn't be surprised that they're here. And Joseph says they're not only here, but they brought everything they have, including their flocks and their herds. They've come from Canaan and are now on their way in the process of becoming settled in Goshen. Excuse me. In verse 2, it says that Joseph took five brothers with him and presented them to Pharaoh. We don't get a listing of the five, uh, so we don't know which ones he took think it's a pretty good bet though that Judah was among them. Judah seems to be included in everything but that is certainly pure speculation on my part. But he took them and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's got a quick question for them. It's the one Joseph had said expect him to ask this. What's your occupation? And you can imagine as these people are coming and you know they're going to be a while because there's five more years of famine left, right? Isn't that what Joseph said mm-hmm. when he met his brothers? And so we've got five years to go. So how are you going to fit into our culture, our society? What are you going to do to be a contribution? I mean, don't know that that's necessary, but certainly that's what Pharaoh has in mind, and we'll see that. And just if Joseph, just as Joseph had prepared them, they said, your servants, which is going to be the common language, talking to the most powerful man in the nation, You're going to be servants at every turn. Your servants, we, your subjects, are shepherds, just as our fathers were. And so this is the family heritage. This is what you can expect out of us. It's almost uh, typical of this era that you learn your father's trade and you keep doing whatever the family trade is. But uh, certainly they're saying, it's just like, we don't know anything else. We're shepherds. Our fathers were shepherds. Shepherds we will be. But they continue, we have come as sojourners, kind of visitors. In other words, we're here 
temporarily. We're, we're here as travelers in the land. Uh, we had no choice because there's no pasture in Canaan for our flocks. The, ser- the um, famine is severe and we're, we're, we're in trouble in terms of being able to continue in Canaan. And so we've come here, therefore, please, so this is a request, please let your servants live in Goshen. And so Pharaoh responds, notice he responds to Joseph. And this, is, this has a little bit of significance. Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. What is he saying about Joseph here? He's in charge. Yeah, you've been in charge of the land of Egypt for nine years now. It's still in your charge. And they've come to you. It's, it's yours to command. Settle your family in where? Not only Goshen, but the best of the land. Pharaoh is telling him, don't be shy about giving them the right good place to be. Oh, by the way, your shepherds, you've been successful. You know shepherding clearly. If he had heard anything about the size of these flocks that came, we don't know how much they were decimated by the famine, but remember we looked back a couple of weeks ago that there wasn't enough pasture space in southern Israel for both Jacob and Esau. So he's not a he's not a small potatoes rancher here. He's he's not you know the Texans have the saying big hat no cattle. Well the, he's not a big hat no cattle guy. He the, he's got the stuff. And so they're successful at it so Pharaoh doesn't miss an opportunity. If you know some good shepherds Put my flocks under their control. Let them let them do well for me as well. And so that's where uh, Pharaoh leaves it with Joseph. It's his job to get them up there, to get them settled, and that piece of business is done. They're here. Pharaoh knows it, and we're on track. Now let's look at verses seven through twelve. If someone would kindly read those for us. Then Joseph brought in his father and stood him and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, These days, the, the, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph, then Joseph and his father and his brothers and gave, then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Okay, so Joseph then has got the arrangements made for the family. They're going to Goshen. Pharaoh's not only authorized, but directed him to set them there and to give them the best of the land. And then Jacob then presents his father, is presented by Joseph to Pharaoh. 
What does Jacob do? Yeah, what does Jacob do upon arrival in Pharaoh's presence? Blesses him. So what do you suppose we're hearing about here? Would that what's what's with this blessing? Don't make this hard. This is not hard stuff. Yeah, in some respects, it would be a normal greeting. You know, you can you can imagine uh, in cultures, you know, may God bless you, um, blessings upon your house. You know, as a part of coming in. There may be more to it than that, though. Um, and so let's take a look at that. Before we get over, you can be turning to Genesis 27. Uh, that's back there a ways. But uh, while you're turning, I want to talk to you about Pharaoh. And we could have said this uh, anywhere along the way of talking about Joseph. Somewhere along the way, the Pharaohs changed from all the indications we have. This would be a different Pharaoh than the one that initially put Joseph in charge. Um, but this Pharaoh is still honoring of Joseph and his father, uh, uh, Joseph and his father, he, and they're um, completing the previous commitments that were started under Pharaoh. This is probably Sinseret IV, and he began his serve, service time as Pharaoh in 1841 uh, B.C. And so here is... Jacob, as he comes in and he initiates this blessing, something probably like a benediction. We don't have the words of it, but let's remind ourselves of Genesis 27, 26 through 29. This is the blessing that Isaac pronounced on Jacob as a result of the deception. <clears throat> let's read that. Genesis 27, 26 through 29. Who's got it? Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, smell of my son, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you, be masters of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. So, here's Jacob, through some trickery, receiving Isaac's blessing. And how does Isaac end that blessing? What's that last thing he says? Curses on those who curse you and blessings on those who bless you. If we were to look back in time, where else would we find these words being used? Who else heard words like these? Abraham from God himself. And then Isaac from God himself. And now here's Isaac passing it on to Jacob. And we might say, well, well, I don't know if that really applies. I mean, after all, he's got this blessing through trickery, right? What happened when Esau come in and said, bless me? I'm sorry. 
the blessing's been passed. Jacob became the child of the promise, receiving the same blessing that had been given to Abraham and Isaac, both Abraham initially directly by God, Isaac, it was affirmed, it transferred to him, and now Isaac is transferring that to Jacob. Is Jacob being blessed by anyone in this chapter we're reading? He's being blessed by God. Being blessed by God, but let's add somebody else to it. Pharaoh. I mean, they can't stay in Canaan. They'll starve to death. Their flocks will go to nothing. Their families will die. I mean, it's just survival is gone in Canaan. And now they are in, eventually, Goshen in Egypt, but with Pharaoh's direction. Give them the best of the land. So Pharaoh is blessing Jacob. Jacob may very well be thinking about this blessing that was passed on to him. If they bless you, then I will bless them. And so here is Jacob voicing some sort of, it may just be a greeting, but it may be more than that. And, boy, so we we find them there in verse 8, Pharaoh has his first uh, direct interaction. How old are you? How many days have you lived? Verse 9, Jacob gives an answer. The years of my wanderings, has Jacob been a wanderer? Yeah, he stayed some places fairly long, but he seems to always eventually be on the move again. The years of my wanderings, sojournings, are 130. The New American Standard says, my years have been few and unpleasant. Few? I think most of us, if we made it to 130, we wouldn't say few anymore. We might, I know... I know some people over the years with joy have said, why won't God take me home? I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I've had enough of this. I'm looking for the next one. But he said, few and unpleasant. What things, if you sit down with Jacob and said, why in the world would you say that? What might you bring up, to, or what might Jacob bring up, that he would say, here's some unpleasantness I've experienced. Walks with a lamp. Yeah. Wrestled with God and commended for it because he survived, but he walks with a lamp. Even to this time, I'm sure. What else? His brother was after him for a while. Yeah, the rival well, and before before even his brother was after him, he had this rivalry with Esau, didn't he? Remember the porridge and you think Esau thought that was a fair deal when it got all done? No, but Esau was pretty foolish that way. Um, And then you say his brother was after him. What do you want to do? uh, Get a little money back out of him? Wanted to kill him. His brother was saying, the only thing that will make me happy is the day that I killed Jacob. What else? He was tricked on his bride. He was tricked on his bride. Yeah, he went, you know, i got to say this. He should have expected something like that. Who set up his own trickery? Who led him in, in performing trickery when he was at home? And who's, she, who's he going to see now? His mother's brother, his uncle. So what's the big surprise here? It runs in the family. But, yeah, he's tricked on his bride. What else? God promised him 
God promised him Canaan. Okay. Did he have Canaan? Not really. And he certainly didn't the day he's going to Goshen. We had to leave Canaan because we were going to starve there. What else? His sons tricked him to believing death. All those sons. Oh, yes, absolutely. He, he has, he has, there's two parts to that. Two huge parts. One is, his favorite son, he lived through, it wasn't true, but he believed it, the death of his favorite son. Probably never truly got over it. I don't know of a parent who's lost a child that truly, truly got over it. And not only that, then when he finds out he's alive, what does he find out? The rest of my sons conspired to kill my favorite son and lied to me about it. So, okay, what else? Well, I stopped, and, and I didn't go back and look him up. I just made a list, and, and I have the advantage. When I teach, these things get a little more firmly in my head, probably. But I would have put down their, his own trickery. I mean, he even is apprehensive going into it. He says to his mother, what if we get caught? His mom says, typical of leaders leading you into a bad idea, I'll worry about that. Yeah, don't you worry about it. I'll take care of that if it happens. So just being a part of that deception, I think, would just not be something you'd look back upon favorably ever. And then he's got the death threat, plus he has to free, flee to the land of Laban. And then you've got Laban's trickery, which we already met, mentioned. We mentioned the, the whole deal with Rachel and Leah. By the way, even though he eventually gets the bride that he served for Rachel, and I'm not saying he thought poorly of Leah, but I can only imagine reading the verses the chapters that talk about the rivalry between Leah and Rachel. Were they fun sisters for each other? No. no. They're both trying to win the favored position in Jacob's eyes. And they're in this birth competition of who can have the most kids and jealousy and all. That had to be just, you know, no wonder he was a successful farmer. I'd have spent all my time in the fields, too. But anyway. But he didn't. But he didn't. No, he didn't, because Leah was the one that had so many children that basically it all boiled down to they're the lead of his inheritance. That's right. That's correct. So he's got these feuding wives, and then when he does decide to leave Laban, Laban chases him, and they have a confrontation. He's accused of stealing the idols, which Rachel really did, but doesn't get caught at it. Uh, and then, oh, we're getting close back to Canaan. What am I going to do about Esau? He's still here. And so he has to try to figure out how to work that situation out, which works out reasonably well. They settle, and his daughter Dinah is raped. And his brothers then kill a city. So they've got to pick up and move. And then Joseph might have been the favorite son, but when he came and told the first dream he told his brothers about, what did they think of him? 
jerk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who do you think you are? Then he has the second dream and he tells his dad about it and his dad goes, who do you think you are? So Joseph, even though he's a favorite son, wasn't necessarily the easiest one. Oh, and by the way, prior to that, Benjamin had been born and what happens at Benjamin's birth? Rachel dies. So he's had the death of his favorite wife. Oh, and now we've got a famine. And in the midst of this famine, he sends down for food and the boys come back going, they thought we were spies. And if we go back, what do they have to take with them? Or maybe who do they have to take with them? Benjamin, his only other son from Rachel. Is he quick to do that? What did it take to prompt him to say, okay, take Benjamin and go back? They ran out of food. They ate what they brought back from Egypt for a period of time and then when they don't have any food we got to go back okay go well we're not going without benjamin oh yes you are i'm not going to lose my other son well if we go there's no point in it he won't talk to us unless we bring benjamin so finally jacob okay take benjamin not to mention the fact simeon was still there and had been there all that time being held captive for their return so Life hasn't really always been easy for Jacob, has it? Now, lest we get confused, has Jacob prospered? Yes. yes. Has God been with Jacob? Yes. As a matter of fact, what would we say is the cause for Jacob being in Egypt, headed for the land of Goshen to settle? God's plan, God's sovereignty. Has God slowed one bit at any moment in his dealing with Jacob and the events of the world that caused him to be in this situation? And the answer is, of course not. So let's continue with what we're looking at. In verse 9, Jacob not only says uh, 130 years and they've been short years and been painful years, but I'm not as old as my fathers were. <laughs> so he's looking at those that went before him and said, well, they live longer than I have so far. Um, and so that conversation is over. And Jacob again then blesses Pharaoh and leaves. <clears throat> and so in verse 11, we see that Joseph took the initiative, as Pharaoh told him to, to get his brothers and his family, his father, and all of their descendants and their possessions up to Goshen and settled there. And it says, Joseph gave them a possession in Egypt, the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Okay, <clears throat> land of Ramses. What does that mean? I don't expect you to know because honestly in my reading and trying to figure this out, I don't think anybody knows. So how would you know? It's clearly another title for Goshen. Uh, several people know that there were pharaohs named Ramses in Egypt. The problem with that one is that Ramses I started reigning in 1292 BC. Well, I don't remember the date now. 
We're not in 1292 yet. Remember the na the numbers are big and count to smaller. Uh, we were in 11 something. I lost my page on that. Can't turn right to it. Must be right here. Yeah, 1141 BC is probably when the Exodus occurred. So we're over a hundred years before the first Ramses that reigned in Egypt, according to the history that we have good account of. Uh, in the Egyptian language, Remsosh, R-E-M-S-O-S-C-H, Remsoch, means pastoral land or pastoral living. And so maybe this is a derivative of that word and said the pastoral area, area. But honestly, the more I read, the more I was pretty convinced there's such varied kinds of ideas. I'm not sure anybody really knows. Um, <clears throat> and maybe some of you have done better research than I. I don't know. But <clears throat> that's the conclusion I came to. And so he settles him there. The famine's still going. So in verse 12, Joseph provides food for all of the family. It says according to their little ones, but that means how big their family is, right? Questions, comments? Anybody have any information that would speak better to anything I spoke of here? I was wondering if he was connecting this part of the Genesis back to Exodus chapter 1. Yeah, there is a possibility. I, I'm, I, I'm, thank you. I, when I was making notes, I didn't get that one transferred over. It might be that here's Moses, thank you, that's probably pretty important, Moses writing to the Israelites, and 400 years have gone by, so they have known kings named Ramses, and it might be that there was some connection of one of those pharaoh's names with the, with the land of Goshen, and so that might have been the modern name, even though... The way the text reads, well, the text doesn't say that. Um, it may be that they were using the time 400 years later, the name for that area could have been associated with one of the Ramses pharaohs. Um, I was just thinking about this, the store cities that they build in, chapter, in Exodus chapter 1, mm -hmm. the ones that were called Ramses. It's different spelling on it, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I, where, where you're headed is where, where I went. It's just like, yeah. I mean, I, I read people I trusted. And they're, I mean, none of them would come to anything that you would say was any kind of a, of a thought that you go, yeah, this is pretty, this, this is pretty likely, even. So, it's all over the map. And it, but it may have been that <clears throat> that was the good name to have meaning to the people in the Exodus. That's a good point. Thank you. Anything else? Well, let's look at verses thirteen through twenty-seven. If I can get somebody to read those, I would appreciate it. I know that's a longer passage. <laughs> if you could see it, you'd read it.
And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And the many and, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's, and there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, for all the, Egypt's, all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had, fixed, had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Stop there. I'm sorry. I gave you the wrong number. 26. Okay. My you. fault, not yours. So we, we get over now and through the rest of the, through this portion of the chapter, we see that this management of the um, fa famine is certainly still going. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's a severe famine and it specifically <coughs> mentions Egypt and Canaan as having no food. And so Joseph traded the grain for money. And he kept doing that until when? No money left. So in verse 15, the people came to Joseph and what did they say? What's that? Money's gone. Yeah, we're not going to try to hide it from you. We don't have any more money. And so Joseph has a solution. And what's his solution? Yep, I will take livestock and trade for food. And so in verse 17, they brought livestock, and Joseph exchanged it for food, and this lasts another year. When that year is up, they come again, and what did they say? We don't have any more money. We're not going to hide it from you. We're done with money, and we're done with our livestock. So he's got... The working animals and the animals that you would uh, have for food and all those things. And it's just gone. All we have left is us and our lives and our land. 
And they ask a question in verse 19, why should we die in your sight, losing both our lives and our land? In essence, it's like, when we die, the land's not going to be worth anything to us anyway. And so they ask him to buy us, take us and our land for food. And we and our land will be slaves or servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, leaving the land desolate, meaning not even people anymore. And so Joseph, in verse 20, buys all the land for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian, no exception, sold his field because of the severe famine. So now Pharaoh owned everything. He owned the grain reserves that they were going to eat out of. He owned the land and he owned the livestock, and the people were his servants. And Joseph manages a little bit more in verse 21, forced relocation. He relocated the people to the cities through all Egypt. Why would he do that? Where were the storehouses? Simplified transportation problems. In essence, you'd say the soup kitchens are in these places. You want to eat, you're going to need to relocate to one of these places. And so he simplified the distribution of these food supplies and moved the people to the cities. Now, there was an exception. What was the exception to people that had to give up their land that's mentioned here in these verses? Only the priests. Yeah, the priests kept their lands and was left in their charge because they were living essentially on grants from Pharaoh. And... By the time of Moses, there were lots of gods. I'm not so sure about this time, but in all probability, all those gods were there. They worshipped everything that moved. Uh, they worshipped anything that had water in it. Uh, they worshipped the Nile particularly. It was considered, the, the I, I guess I would say, the god that provided for the growth of the crops and sustained them. And, and, and they, the sun, they were big sun worshippers. Joseph had married a priest's daughter that was probably a sun worshiper. And so the, they were taken care of because you've got to take care of the priests, right? If you believe, not saying this is the right thing to believe, and by the way, they worship frogs and stuff too. It's really weird, all the stuff they worship. But if you believe that your sustenance and your future and the futility of fertility of your land and your people is based on what these gods think of you, how are you going to treat the representatives of those gods? And so the priests were well cared for and they were able to keep their possessions because they were going to get these food supplies anyway from the allotment from Pharaoh. So in verse 23, Joseph proclaimed to the people, look, I now have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed, go sow the land. So he gives them back the means. Apparently we're reaching the end of the fullness of the famine and they're able to start planting and growing and sustaining again. And the rule is at harvest time, you will give one-fifth of what you grow to Pharaoh. What has to be done with the other four-fifths of what they harvest? Feed your family. Oh, by the way, we're not giving you seed to plant with next year. That comes out of your four-fifths. 
which I'm not up on farming ground you don't own these days, but this looks to me like a pretty good deal. I would say Pharaoh's probably providing, we don't see it said, but he's probably providing the livestock that goes along with working the farm. So um, not terrible anyway. It's something that's sustainable. And <clears throat> how would you feel if the only way you could get food was to give all your money and all your possessions to the government and then they'd feed you? Would you like that? We'd feel like we got cheated somewhere, wouldn't we? Is that how these people respond? They're pretty happy with it. They praise Joseph. Now, it could be, I suppose, but I don't believe it is at all, that this is, we have to praise him because he's in charge. You know, there's a little bit of that can go on in life. But I think they mean what they say here. You've saved our lives. Let us find favor in your sight, our Lord. You're our boss. We will be Pharaoh's slaves. One thing that probably made this a pleasing response to them is the government wasn't manipulating the situation. There really was no food being grown. And the government had had enough wisdom to have Joseph set aside enough foodstuffs to take him through seven years of no production. So you might think, and maybe they could have but didn't, I don't know, well, you, you could have saved up seven years of stuff for yourself. You didn't do that, so here is the people that had it being gracious to you. I, I really think that's how they took it. When they looked around and said, there's no food being growing, how are we going to survive? That gives you a different attitude than you just wanted all my goods. Not only that, Joseph's the one doing it, right? Did Joseph profit from this personally? He was doing it on Pharaoh's behalf. The word is fiduciary. He had a fiduciary responsibility. He was managing it for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's benefit. So now all this belonged to Pharaoh. Joseph, I don't think, was getting poor working for Pharaoh. But nonetheless, uh, he, he did it uh, for Pharaoh and wasn't cheating the people. And so they seem genuinely pleased with what happens here. Yes, sir. We're gonna uh, primarily says Egyptians, right? So uh, in, in my mind, I'm just thinking, like, were the, were the Jews excluded from this? And would that um, so, exacerbate the tensions that we see in Exodus? Well, I, I don't know if they remembered back to this day or look back to this day. But go back to uh, verse uh, 12. How are the... <laughs> You're getting into my next few verses here, and that's great. No, no, that's fine. It's a good transition. How were the Israelites being fed? Joseph provided them food. Yeah, they didn't have to go through all this. Joseph was shipping up allotments of food for them on a regular basis. You can just count on it, and we're going to see some more reasons why we know that's true. Let's read the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 27. Who's got that for us? Then thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, 
and was fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred and forty-seven years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Okay. And I'll just take my ending statement and put it here a little bit. There's more to come about the end of J Jacob's life. Because we're, this isn't all the details, but this is kind of the synopsis. In chapter 48, we're going to get into some real real detail about, about that. Um, and 49, for that matter. So we've got a ways to go before the end of Jacob in terms of chapters, but this is kind of the, the ending point. Now in verse 27 it says, Israel lived in Egypt in Goshen. And what did they do? They prospered. We can be a little more specific. Numerous. Numerous. What else? Gained possessions. They gained possessions. Now what's going on with the Egyptians at the same time? <coughs> They're losing possessions. They're giving up everything down to the land and their own lives as slaves, or at least as servants. Depends on how you want to take that word. And that's not happening to Jacob and his brood. They're up there getting food shipments from Joseph, chapter 12, and they're acquiring property. Now, what was the property? Was it land? Was it livestock? My answer is, what difference does it make? They're still going the opposite direction of everybody else. So they're prospering. This is working well for them. Who was God with? Jacob and his family. How was he protecting them? Joseph. And we don't read in the book of Genesis any complaining from the locals. Maybe it's because of Joseph's position. Maybe the locals weren't going up to check on these loathsome shepherds. Um, I'm sure some of you have read The Hiding Place and Corey Tenboom hated the fleas because she found out the reason the guards didn't bother them in their particular cabin was it was flea infested. Kept the guards away. It's not fun being a loathsome shepherd in a land that loathes shepherds except for one thing. Keeps the other people away while you're acquiring property and they're not. So I don't know the answer to that. Those are all speculations. But they become fruitful, they became many. So they're growing even while Jacob is still alive in terms of how many people. We do get the beginnings of the end of Jacob here in verse 28. They lived in Egypt for 17 years before Jacob's time is up. So it's going to be famine plus 12 years. And he's 147 years old when he dies. In verse 29, death is growing near, and he calls for Joseph. And he says, please, if I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and treat me with kindness and faithfulness. What's going on here? What's this hand under thigh business? Well, 
Do you remember? Remember where else have we read this in Genesis? What's that? Well, that's true, but that's not really where we're at. Go to. That was, that was where Isaac, uh, Isaac had his sons place their hands and be given their blessing. Well, no, no, you're close. Abraham. It's Isaac. Abraham. It's Abraham. You're right, not Isaac. It's Abraham. And we're looking for a wife for Isaac. And Eliezer comes into the room and he wants what we would call today something like a blood oath or a, you know, and this is how it's done. If you're going to make a promise that is binding, he says, Eliezer, put your hand under my thigh and promise you're going to go to the old country and you're going to find a wife for Isaac from my family. And it's this hand under the thigh business. And Eliezer says, I will, but what if no one will come? Well, then you're released. So Eliezer, the chief servant of Abraham, the one who at one point Abraham said to God, he's going to be my heir, makes a binding oath promise to Abraham I'll go, I'll do everything I can to find a wife for Isaac from your family. If we fail, if it can't be done, then I'm out of it, but I've got to go make every effort until it just won't happen. And so Eliezer certainly goes and he finds Rebecca, and Rebecca then becomes Isaac's wife. And so this is the other time in the book of Genesis that we see the same kind of an oath. He's saying to Joseph, I want a binding pledge. Put your hand under my thigh and promise me, if you'll give me favor, that you will see that um, what he's going to ask for is don't, by the way, if you want to go read that about Abraham, that's in Genesis 24. Don't bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my fathers, when I die, you shall carry me. So he's looking for Joseph to take care of it personally out of Egypt and bury me in the burial place of my fathers. Where is that? Remember where the burial place of his fathers is? It's near the Oaks of Mamre. There's a field. Who bought the field? Abraham. Why did he buy the field? To bury Sarah. And the field was called Ephron's Field. And in that field, there was a cave. And the opening of that cave faced the Oaks of Mamre, which is where I, Abraham kind of settled in when he first came for a while. Abraham was like the rest of them. He didn't actually stay in one spot long term, although that was the main one. And so I want to go back and be buried in that cave with my <coughs> fathers. And how does Joseph respond? You bet. You've got it. I'll do it. And then we get to verse 31. He That wasn't enough for Jacob. Swear to me. Don't know what that swearing looked like. But I, I want, in addition to the fact you've got my hand under my thigh and you said so, I want a firm swearing to me you'll do it. So Joseph swore to him he would do it. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. 
and I'm not sure what that means. Um, but let's go look at Hebrews 11:21. Hebrews 11:21. This is not a strong link to this moment, but honestly, it's the only thing in the Bible that does link to what Hebrews is talking about here. Hebrews 11:21. If I can find it. This is the faith chapter. These are all the examples of the men of faith of old. And uh, it's a great study. You ought to study this. If you haven't, you'll see, you'll see that the first half of people received a lot of blessing. And it keeps talking about how great it was that God responded to these men. Then you see all these people that got sawn into and had bad things happen to them. So faith doesn't necessarily give you a smooth ride. Hebrews eleven twenty one. Somebody read this. That bowing and worship is the connection that some authors make that this was a time that he, he worshipped. But his in Genesis, the time of blessing Joseph's sons hasn't occurred yet, so it probably is a weak link to try to say Hebrews 11.21 lines up with 47.31 in Genesis. But I thought I'd show it to you. Questions, comments, thoughts? When you look at the story of Joseph, we could say the book of Genesis, you could say lots of different things. But when you look at what's going on right here in the story of Joseph when this is coming together and bearing fruit, what, what comes to your mind? And I asked you that so I can tell you what comes to my mind. So I'll just do that. And that is the sovereignty of God. I mean, you, you, we're not watching a bunch of things happen to people that are out of chance or that God somehow fixes after the calamity begins. God orchestrates every step of this along the way. And even in the sovereignty of God and the great blessings that are offered to Jacob and the promises, Jacob says, I've had a tough time. So who are we when we say, I'm having a tough time? You, you hear the phrase sometimes, and, and sometimes it's not from a Christian kind of a person, but sometimes it is, and that this world's going to hell in a handbasket. And in a way, that's true. Read Revelation. Where's this world headed? But sometimes we might get the idea, or somebody might have the idea, maybe none of you do, that Boy, I just wish God was more in control of these things. <laughs> God can't get any more in control than he is now. Doesn't mean we're going to individually have an easy time of it. Doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer and die. None of the apostles saved, the, saved John, by, by tradition at least, lived, a, lived and died of natural causes. Every one of them was, was killed. They were the great men that founded the church. Why would we hope for a different outcome than what they had? So we're going to have tough times. And when we look at tough times, most of those came into the earth in a very direct way through sin. That's where it got difficult to do your job, men. That's why you have to sweat when you work. That's what it says. 
and you could keep on going, death, disease, destruction, evil, all that came out of sin, and yet God controls every bit of that in the sense that he orders the events of this world so that his purposes are met. Very clear, and we see it very clearly in this story of how he established the nation of Israel through a famine. Questions, comments? Now let me pray. Father, your word tells us to be full of joy. Paul, writing to the people of Philippi, said, be full of joy. And, and again and again, be full of joy. James told us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Lord, sometimes it's difficult to be joyful when things aren't going well. But Lord, remind us every minute, every day, that you are the sovereign God and your purposes are always met. And you work in the details, both difficult and easy. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the grace you've shown us in bringing us to Jesus Christ and giving us every reason to hope for the next kingdom because it is the one of rest and promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.